Where is Pancake's house? What? We stop at Pancake's house. At around seven years old, my parents took me to the movies. I don't remember what we were supposed to see, but either it was sold out or somebody got the showtime wrong, but the options were leave or head into a showing of John Carpenter's They Live, which was starting relatively soon. So we opted to stay for They Live. I remember my father guffawing at it and uh, mocking it as the wrestler movie, since it stars the late, great Rowdy Roddy Piper. This is 1988, and I'm seven years old, so I didn't possess the critical thinking skills to be able to accurately digest the film and its message. To me at the time, it was just a super cool alien movie, but I did like it very much, and growing up it became one of my go-to staples which I can just throw on at any time and be cool with it. The film takes place in downtown LA and centers around Piper's character Nada, a drifter just looking for an honest day's pay. He stays with a local homeless camp and gets a gig doing manual labor with David Keats' character Frank. It's just about now that we see a broadcast hacker overriding the local cable signal to try and deliver a message of truth. Now, I'm sure some of you might be saying to yourself, well, that's a little far-fetched. How can you just override a cable signal from your basement? However, just one year before the release of They Live, on November 22, 1987, what's been dubbed the Max Headroom Incident occurred, where Chicago TV station WGN was overridden with incredibly creepy and surreal footage as a person dressed as Max Headroom seemed to make strange, odd statements for about 90 seconds before the signal was then corrected. The Max Headroom Incident is absolutely fascinating and worth way more than just a mere mention here, so let's pick that up a bit later. As the first act wraps up, listen to what the hacker is trying to broadcast to the people. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, to others. We are focused only on our own game. We Please understand, they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated. I mean, come on, wow. How prophetic and extremely relevant. Now at this point, we don't know how they've been doing all these things, but clearly this man knows something and he's trying desperately to warn us. It continues the next day with this transmission. They are dismantling the sleeping middle class. More and more people are becoming poor. We are their cattle. We are being bred for slavery. Is this not exactly what's happened 30 years later? With the middle class non-existent and the 1% reaping the rewards of tax reform, it's almost as if Carpenter was able to peer into the future and rip its reality straight into his film. 
Nada begins to realize the transmissions have something to do with the church next door, but Frank implores him to leave it alone. The riot police are called in to disrupt the homeless camp in another attempt to silence the truth with power and corruption. Nada manages to steal a box from the church, but finds nothing but sunglasses. When he puts them on, he realizes that subconscious messages are not only being transmitted through all forms of media, but the signal also doubles as a camouflage for the aliens and their spy drone technology. What? Spying drones in 1988? Is John Carpenter some kind of magic wizard? Now to me, that explains why Frank doesn't want to get involved. He's been subconsciously told to sleep, conform, watch TV, marry, reproduce. Frank even mentions his wife and kids being a reason to not put his job at risk. All the things that the aliens want him and everybody else to do. Now, like us, the aliens need to do shit. They need groceries, they need to go to work, they need to learn how to assimilate into our mundane lifestyle to hide the greater motives of control. In the supermarket scene, Carpenter even shows us an alien getting a promotion over a human, furthering the parallel between the aliens and a full-on class war. So depressed, I don't know what to do. Hey, go for it, man. It's easy for you to say you got the promotion. Look, it'll come, all right? Just don't worry about it. Listen to what the alien politician has to say on TV, despite knowing the conditions of the struggling. The feeling is definitely there. It's a new morning in America. Fresh, vital. The old cynicism is gone. We have faith in our leaders. We're optimistic as to what becomes of it all. It really boils down to our ability to accept. We don't need pessimism. There are no limits. <laughs> it figures it would be something like this. Our nation, our ideal, oh. vision. Excuse me. Just survive. You know, you look like your head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. <laughs> Nada eventually meets back up with Frank and tries to alert him to what he's discovered. And again, Frank wants no part of it, and that leads to what's easily the most iconic five-minute fight scene that you will ever see committed to film. Once the two finally pair up and are on the same page, they find their way into the underground alien base, where alien security guards... Where alien... Where alien security guards talk into PKE meters like walkie-talkies. There's a speech in progress in a fancy banquet hall. Let's listen to what he's saying. Our projections show that by the year 2025, not only America, but the entire planet will be under the protection and the dominion of this power alliance. The gains have been substantial, both for ourselves and for you, the human power elite. <laughs> you have given us entree to the resources we need in our ongoing quest for multidimensional expansion. And in return, the per capita income of each of you here tonight has grown, and this year alone, by an average 39%. So, here it's confirmed that it's basically been an alien-human partnership this entire time, with wealth and class being the perk for the humans just to simply ignore and close their eyes to what's really going on. 
We even meet the, quote, bum from the homeless camp dressed up in a tux and sipping champagne. Even he sold out for silence and complacency. Nada and Frank make their way to the roof of Cable 54 and blow the signal, leaving the aliens unmasked for all the people to see. Now right there is where the film ends, but now what? All of these people in power are still in power. It's clear that a percentage of humanity is more than happy to look the other way as long as their 401ks are rising. The aliens are now exposed for what they are and their intentions known, but will anybody do anything about it? There's a whole new economy that's been established from the growth and the wealth of the community. I'm pretty sure that the newspaper guy still wants to get all that alien business, and I'm also sure that the human buying the paper wants to continue to be able to afford that paper and also have the job that he's commuting to. It was fun to imagine what might have happened next after it ends, but here we are 30 years later and I think we have our answer. Did the populace rise up and overthrow the unmasked and exposed corrupt who wage class wars for their own gain? Nope. It's a chilly November evening in the suburbs of Chicago back in 1987. Grandma is sitting down to watch the 11 p.m. airing of Doctor Who. Right when everybody involved is about to pass the fuck out, this happens. The audio is very distorted, so let me give you a hand. Now, in just a second, a man wearing a Max Headroom mask is about to appear on the screen. He's saying, that does it, he's a frickin' nerd. He's talking about WGN sports pundit Chuck Swirsky, whom he says he's better than. There he's calling Swirsky a frickin' liberal. That's New Coke's advertising slogan, Catch the Wave. He does so while holding a Pepsi can. He begins to sing Your Love is Fading. He exclaims about his piles, after which a flatulent sound can be heard. WGN stands for World's Greatest Newspaper, which is in reference to the Chicago television station and its sister radio station. His buttocks is now partially exposed, and he starts to scream, They're coming to get me. An unidentified female accomplice wearing a French maid costume then tells him to bend over, bitch. The accomplice then started to spank him with a fly swatter as the man screams loudly, Oh, do it. As far as I can tell, a massive electric shock, he died instantly. The person or persons responsible for this broadcast have never been found, and no clues to the culprit's identity have ever materialized. That is, until sometime in 2010, when a Reddit user claimed he might know who was behind this still unsolved mystery. The user goes on to claim that back in the late 80s and early 90s, he had befriended two brothers who he identifies only as J and K. J and K were very heavily into the BBS scene of the early dial-up days of the internet and were living in the Chicago area at the time. Now, don't get me wrong, this is all very interesting and it's a neat, fun little story, but it's all just one Reddit user's post. Why should anybody actually believe him? It felt like entertainment at best, until about three years later when another Reddit user was actually able to corroborate a lot of what the original poster had been saying about brothers J and K and the Chicago area at the time. 
So now the story has gained some steam, and a few months later, the notorious hacker, only known as 4chan, claimed that he knew who was involved and that the signal hack was actually done live. Although the broadcast footage clearly shows the material was pre-taped prior to the signal intrusion. It wasn't until another two years later, five total years now since the original story surfaced, that both J and K were seemingly innocent of this hack. After a report from a 2013 article from Motherboard and Vice, a few previously unknown paths were now available to travel down, including former staff members at WGN and also WTTW, the two main intrusion targets. It had been decided that the chance of something like this being an outside job with no known knowledge of the broadcast community of the time was basically impossible and simply could not be done with off-the-shelf technology of the time. So it seems like J and K were red herrings, but why did people seem to know that something quote big was going to happen that weekend? And now is probably a good time to bring up Captain Midnight. Captain Midnight was the moniker for a man named John R. McDougall, who on April 27, 1986, overtook the signal of the Galaxy One cable satellite to broadcast a message of protest against rising HBO rates for satellite customers. Now, Captain Midnight, by the way, was born in Elmhurst, Illinois. That's a suburb of Chicago. The hijacking of the Galaxy One took place out of Florida, but considering the McDougal's connection to the suburban Chicago area, and the Max Headroom broadcast coming only 14 months after the Captain Midnight broadcast. I can't imagine many people had the knowledge, connections, or just pure balls to pull something like this off. So between that and the fact that McDougal is actually from that area of Chicago leaves him very, very, very suspicious in my eyes. Now these two signal intrusion stories always seem to be linked uh, because of their similarity, but I've yet to see anybody hypothesize that both of these incidents could have been perpetuated by the same individual. I have a feeling that we'll never actually find out who was behind that Max Headroom broadcast, but I'm pretty sure I know who it was. The early 2000s were a great time for graphic novels. Garth Ennis's Preacher had just wrapped up, and The Walking Dead was quickly becoming Image Comics' money-making machine. DC Comics had the cyberpunk epic Transmetropolitan, and perhaps my favorite book to come out during this period is called Why the Last Man. Not why as in a question, but why as in the letter. What if after some unknown outbreak, you were literally the last man on Earth? Because that's what happens to the book's protagonist, Yorick, who finds himself and his pet capuchin monkey as the only two living male mammals on the entire planet. It's a great read, and it only clocks in at 60 issues, so unlike most ongoing monthly series, things get wrapped up and we have a definitive third act. I always thought this series would be amazing to try to bring to film or television. I guess I wasn't the only one, as back in 2007, New Line Cinema acquired the rights to Y, and the project had stagnated in developmental limbo for the next six years. Until finally, in 2013, it was announced that 10 Cloverfield Lane director Dan Trachtenberg would be attached to now direct the film adaptation. Unfortunately for New Line Cinema, they couldn't get the proper balls rolling quickly enough, and the rights to the property reverted back to the series' co-creators. In 2014, Trachtenberg confirmed that the New Line movie was not happening, but the following year, rising cable star FX became interested in the project. FX also produces Always Sunny, Fargo, American Horror Story, and more. Now, I have a lot more faith in FX after producing some truly cinematic television uh, with the first two seasons of its Fargo series. 
And now, finally, after 11 years, we now have an official pilot order at FX. Veteran Michael Green has been tapped as showrunner, which sounds like a good thing so far because Green co-wrote not only Logan, but also Blade Runner 2049. So those are two films that were up for Oscars this past year. So more and more, it's looking like the three-time Eisner Award winner Why the Last Man is in pretty good shape to be picked up, and with AMC's continuously declining quality of not only Walking Dead, but also Preacher, which by the way, I think has been a massive disappointment. Uh, I think they're in pretty good shape. Green said in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter that his vision for the show changed after this past year's presidential election. Here's a quote. It would have been a very different show and very different development process had the election not been as horrifying as it was. I had to put the script down for a couple of months and really reassess it tonally because it became a different creature. It became a violent protest. It couldn't not be political, and I had to embrace it, and I had to find my way in, and I had to find a way to channel my own dismay, disappointing rage into it, while still keeping it what it is. For a minute there, I almost walked away. With some of the book's themes touching toxic masculinity and also keeping a working government in the face of a post-apocalyptic nightmare, uh, should the show make it to air, I would expect this version of Why to be very heavily updated, mirroring a lot of the realities that we're seeing today. No casting information has been released as of yet, but with only one male lead, there will be a lot of room for both established and upcoming female talent. Why the Last Man can be found in graphic novel form in any respectable comic shop, and also of course online, but Go out and support your local comic shop, or you won't have one anymore, and shows like this will never make it to air. A huge box office shocker this past weekend with U.S. office alum John Krasinski's A Quiet Place dominating all other films with a gigantic $50 million opening weekend. A Quiet Place stars Krasinski and wife Emily Blunt as a family with three small children attempting to survive in a post-apocalyptic Earth where Demogorgon-esque aliens have infected the world and hunt their prey based on sound alone. This kind of setup makes for a very interesting film angle as much of the movie is without dialogue and relies much more heavily on the ability to emote through facial movements and body language, a lot like The Shape of Water. The sound mixing is phenomenal as well, and I would highly suggest seeing this film in the middle of the day on a Monday or Tuesday so you can really have the whole place to yourself. A Quiet Place is definitely a film where you will be annoyed by loud chewing and cell phone addicts. The last few movies I've went to see, I've had issues with rude, inconsiderate patrons who chat through the entire movie and use their phones at full brightness. Surprisingly enough, these weren't even teenagers, not even in their 20s. These are full-ass grown people in their 50s and 60s acting like they have no clue what cinema etiquette even is. I shouldn't have to tap a 50-year-old man on the shoulder and tell him to save his texting for later. Anyway, let's check out a scene from A Quiet Place. Wow. The film really speaks for itself. A Quiet Place's debut weekend did beat out Jordan Peele's Get Out by about $20 million, and with its extremely strong opening and solid word of mouth, I would expect to see this film in more theaters this weekend with a minimal second week sales drop. While it does have some issues here and there, I definitely recommend A Quiet Place. It's about time that we've had some quality horror movies getting the respect they deserve. Thanks for listening to this second episode of Pancake's House. 
The show can now be heard on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and more. For questions, comments, or advertising opportunities, feel free to reach me at pancakeshousepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at 2PancakesHouse, or on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash pancakeshouse for access to exclusive material and extras. See you guys next week. That's a... That's a fountain of conversation, man. That's a geyser. I mean, whoa, Teddy, stand back, man. <laughs>